0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to this Twitter Space. It is the budget preview brought to you by Business Day. My name is Kaisi Tolem, and I'll be your host for this evening. And of course, we are here to engage and look forward to next week's very important medium-term budget policy statement. I do have three guests with me who will be leading our conversation, but of course, we definitely want to hear your insights and your views about what you expect from next week and perhaps what you would be putting together if you had the privilege of putting together this particular budget statement. My three guests are very distinguished in the world of economics and public finance and have been following these particular trends for a very long time. Firstly, I bring you Michael Sachs, who is well known to everybody in the world of public finance. He is currently an adjunct professor at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies, at the University of edwards front He's also worked at the National Treasury as the former head of the Budget Office. He also does, of course, lead a lot of policy matters and a lot of policy discourse in the matters of public resources and how best they can be allocated, particularly in a country with so many competing interests. We also have Hilary who who is an editor-at-large at The Business Day, where, of course, she has written for the better part of the past 30 years about all matters relating to. To public finance, the political economy, and everything else in between. She is our second panelist for this evening. Last but not least is the Chief Economist at Alex Forbes, Mr. Aizam Slanga, who, of course, is a regular columnist for the Business Day, and gives us a lot of insights onto the world of economics and its intricacies. So those are my three panelists. But, of course, we also definitely want to hear from you what you think about next week's budget policy statement. There are many ways in which you can interact with us. You can, of course, keep tweeting, but make sure that when you do tweet, you can tag the business live page or simply put your hashtag that says budget preview so that we can be able to track your conversations and your contributions and be able to respond to you. Alternatively, you can simply raise your hand and say, I'd like to say something. And of course, you'll be able to identify that and we'll give you the space. We'll convert you into a speaker and you'll be able to share your input. So that is essentially how we are going to run the program for the next hour or so The big question, of course, is the question of why on earth do we even have a budget statement in October? And I think in light of what we've seen over the past couple of weeks, when the former chancellor of the United Kingdom put together what he believed was a budget statement and that has led to another collapse in government, it's quite important for us to figure out why these things are necessary in the first place and how exactly it is structured and presented in the South African context. Um, For that, I thought there'll be no one more accomplished in giving us those particular insights and that background than Michael Sachs himself. Michael, you were at National Treasury for a very long time. In South Africa, we always hear about February and March being the big moments where you open parliament and then there is the big budget. Then in October, the minister comes back and then he tables something and a lot of citizens have always been intrigued about, well, why do you do this twice? What happens in October? What's the difference between February and October? Can you just give us a brief insight onto how the budget process works and why it is that we end up with two presentations of that nature in any calendar year? Uh,
1: Thanks, uh, Kaya, and evening to everybody. Um, I think that you're very right. People don't really understand the process, and I hear all kinds of people talking about a mini budget. Some people call it a mid-term budget or a medium-term budget, and it's important, I suppose, to realise what is the intention or what was the intention and when it was first introduced. Is that this? First of all, it is not a budget. It is a policy statement. So it's a statement of government's intentions and the, uh, the reason for it is that it's supposed to firstly enable public deliberation and discussion on what those intentions are so that uh, by the time you go to the budget in February, you've had an opportunity to absorb and engage the public debate that has taken place and and the various submissions that have been made in Parliament with respect to your medium-term outlook, your your fiscal policy stance, uh, and the policy priorities that you're presenting there. So that's the one thing, is that it is a statement that is meant uh, to do exactly what we're doing, which is to discuss the issues around the statement. Um, But it is not itself a budget. The budget itself takes place in February, and that's when Treasury really uh, pins down all of the details. Parliament um, in that uh, year. The, one of the problems with with the annual budget it is is it, it is that it tends to have a very annual focus. In term budget policy statement is supposed to uh, focus over the medium term. Uh, far further into the future, uh, the problem is I think that over the last uh, uh, few years, especially in the wake of covid, there is so much uncertainty about the macro fiscal, and financial conditions, and indeed the policy trajectory over the medium term, that the medium term, the importance of the medium term outlook has really been diminished, such that all you, all you can really rely on is the annual budget, because we're all a little bit in the dark about what's going to happen next year and the year after. Uh, so, so that would be my summary, uh, in short. So Thanks a lot for that, Michael. And I think, obviously, just the ability to understand
0: how these two processes feed into each other is a remarkably important one. I do, however, think that for a lot of people, when you look at, you know, the scale of government and the scale of projects and whatever initiative that any government wants to put together in place, a 12-month time horizon is probably never going to be sufficient in order to be able to execute and see the impact and then adequately assess it well enough to be able to say, wait, hold on, The last time we were here, we thought this is where the resources needed to be directed. But as it turns out, that's where the greater need is. So what then becomes essentially the right evaluation horizon for us to say actually whatever is committed to by the state, we'll give it a couple of years, we'll give it a a few months in order to then be able to say, wait, hold on. It doesn't look like the intentions are actually
1: being matched by the outcomes. So I should have said that uh, that there's kind of two elements to the MTBPS, which is also what makes it a little bit confusing. There's the budget policy statement, which, as I've said, is a policy statement looking at where are we going over the medium term. But there's also something else that takes place, which is the adjustment budget. Now, the adjustment budget is Uh, also just got an annual focus. In fact, it's less than an annual focus because what it's doing is it's taking the numbers that were tabled in February, in the February budget earlier this year, and saying, do we need to adjust those numbers? And obviously, uh, in the situation we're facing now, there's lots of adjustments required. For instance, we did not foresee floods in KZN when when the budget was tabled. And there's a need to adjust the in-year budget, the current year's budget, in order to accommodate various expenditures that maybe you didn't anticipate when you had uh, uh, tabled the budget. So what it ends up being almost is a half a year budget. You have a budget in February, and then, which has an annual focus, and then you revise that budget in October. You adjust uh, the, the February budget. That's why it's called the adjustment budget. But uh, again, because of the large disruption to to the world and the economy since since COVID, uh, you, you almost end up in a position where the only credible budget numbers that you can really depend on are the ones that relate to to what happened two years ago, because from two years ago we have the audited outcomes of what has actually taken place. Uh, And that we can depend on with a great deal of certainty. Uh, The one of what is going to happen this year, the one that was tabled in February, is likely to be adjusted in a very uh, major way. Uh, Every year it is adjusted, but I think uh, the years since COVID with with the large and volatile changes in the economy means the annual adjustment is very large. So even this year's budget is not... Uh, a kind of 100% reliable. And once you go into next year, what is the plan for next year? Uh, it's also uh, uh, difficult to say because things like revenue and the expenditure path, uh, there's so much up in the air that it's difficult what to, to say what is going to happen. And once you go uh, beyond, uh, say, 2023 into 2024, it's really anyone's guess. Uh, there are so many unknowns that uh it's very difficult, I think objectively to do that kind of medium term planning in this context.
0: It is a remarkably tricky one, isn't it, Michael? Because even when you look at the timing of when we have the main budget speech either at towards the end of February or in extraordinary times, maybe at the beginning of March, you imagine that that is at the point in time. When multiple government uh, departments and multiple fears of government, then know how much has been finally allocated to them. And perhaps when they then start their spending programs from the 1st of April, it is difficult to imagine that by the time we get to the end of September, anyone has really executed on everything that they thought they would. So what then becomes the basis for the adjustments that then get tabled in October? Do you simply ask people to give an interim check-in to say, well, it's six months down the line? Tell us what you've done with the resources allocated to you. It looks like you're not doing as much as you thought you would. So therefore, let us adjust it. What beca- what informs the adjustment process?
1: So there's various things uh, that are set out in the PFMA. Uh, one of the, I mean, one of the like the big categories is uh, gonna be what we call or what is called in the parlance of the PFMA unforeseeable. Um, um, unanticipated expenditures. So, so as I mentioned, if there is some kind of natural disaster or event that couldn't be properly a- anticipated at the time of the budget, you uh, would want to allocate funds for disaster relief, uh, for instance, that's one of them. Also, in relation to capital projects, there are often, uh, because, ca- because of the nature of capital spending, Uh, Unlike operating spending, which tends to kind of recur at the same level year after year, capital spending, there are all kinds of reasons why capital spending can go faster than you anticipated or go slower than you anticipated. Because, of course, the adjustments can also be downward revisions uh, because departments are not spending as much as they would have foreseen uh, at the time of the budget and therefore uh, they want to reallocate resources maybe from one uh, program to another or and so on and so forth. And uh, so so there are many uh, reasons why you do need that in-year flexibility. Um, uh, Just imagine now, as we're sitting, uh, we haven't concluded the public sector pay agreement. Now, the entire budget that was set out in February Uh, made particular assumptions about this year's incremented wages. Uh, We don't have a settlement now, but had we had a settlement, we would have certainly seen National Treasury tabling adjustments in the uh, adjustment budget of October uh, to to revise uh, the allocations to departments and also to provinces to accommodate uh, that that, Uh, wage settlement. So I think, you you, you know, it's these are uh, big and uh, difficult problems with budgeting all over the world. And in all budget systems, you have to strike a balance between you would like ideally to have this medium term focus where you see, uh, where, where you create stability also for planning and operations of government departments. You would like to to have a budget also that is more certain uh, in the current year and doesn't need too much adjustment in the current year, but you also need to have flexibility to respond to unforeseen e- events. Government is a very big and complex operation and, and too much rigidity on the annual budget uh, would be a problem. I should say, just uh, in conclusion, I feel like we've, we've spoken about these nuts and bolts a bit too much. But um, if you look at the evolution of the medium-term budgeting system since it was created in 1997, uh, it really uh, goes through two phases. The first phase, between, uh, 90, between 2002 and, and around 2012, you saw whatever was tabled in the medium-term estimates – uh, the actual expenditure that took place were, was uh, tens uh, of billions rand, more than was planned over the medium term. So the, the, the medium term uh, framework was kind of a floor uh, onto which government would then add additional resources in the subsequent years. Since about 2012, it has become a ceiling and uh, the medium-term estimates that Treasury publishes in uh, in the MTBPS are often, uh, there are subsequent cuts uh, going forward. So the resources departments actually get are far less than what the medium-term est- estimates suggested they would get. So as a tool for planning, as a tool for establishing uh, a stable path of fiscal policy over the medium term, I really think we're we're approaching a situation where uh, the, the the whole kind of institutional framework of medium term bu- budgeting has become compromised, and uh, we're going to need to think about uh, a new set of institutions, perhaps for instance linked to um, uh, wage negotiations that so if we can synchronize and coordinate wage bargaining and um, uh, with some kind of sense of a fiscal consensus on or a, a, a consensus around a rule of what is the, f- the 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 future path that we are all committed to uh, we need to think about some changes to budget institutions you mentioned uh, the the uk example at the beginning and both in europe and in the uk These types, I mean, obviously, when we first introduced the medium term budgeting framework, it was quite strongly aligned with what they had in the UK. But the UK has changed and evolved quite substantially since then. So is Europe. But South Africa remains has not attempted to significantly reform its budget and fiscal institutions for the last 20 years. And I sense that we may be reaching a point where we will need to think about that question.
0: Definitely something worth revisiting. And of course, guys, if you'd like to add your comments, feel free to actually just tag Business Live SA so we can be able to pick up your comments. We'll also be able to take some of you live so you can just raise your hand and let us know if you'd like to ask a question. Hillary, Michael raises a rather important issue here that, you know, at the end of the day, we are really trying to strike a balance um, in light of the resource limitations that we have. But perhaps an even more delicate issue here is that we also need to strike a balance between the priorities themselves and the fact that we call it a policy statement simply means that the government of the day has to start off with a very wide range of wish lists and somehow figure out which ones must eventually be given, not only the prioritization, but also the resources necessary in order to execute on them. How difficult is that process of essentially trying to find the right policies to back in light of the fact that every single ministry has an un, 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 a never ending wish list
2: kaya that's really what what the government budgets is um, in its absolute essence is uh, a monetary expression of government 's choices, and I suppose that is that is the political process if you like, is what are going to be government 's priorities um, what are the pro the trade-offs, what is it going to spend on each of its priorities, given that there's a limited envelope of resources. Um, And there's something else, which is the markets out there, Kaya, and I think one of the things which um, the medium-term budget updates us on, and perhaps this year is a particularly dramatic year, is on the state of the world, because uh, South Africa is – operating and budgeting in a world where investors are allocating capital and a government that has to borrow, uh, as ours does and as all governments do, um, is quite dependent at one level about what uh, what the state of global markets is. And certainly since February, Budget Day, you might remember, was the 23rd of February. On the 24th of February, Russia invaded the Ukraine. And the world has changed pretty fundamentally between then and now. So I think one of the things we will be looking to in the budget is an update on the state of the world and what that means for South Africa. In fact, South Africa is looking pretty benign, relatively speaking. We have, again, got a big revenue overrun. We are going to be collecting much more tax this year than was expected even in February, thanks to the commodities boom. Um, And the spending has so far stayed within more or less what was expected, though there are some pressures going forward. Uh, But the world out there has got a lot more scary. And uh, I think any fiscal mistakes, as the UK's experience, has shown us in recent days and weeks Uh, any fiscal mistakes are going to be punished perhaps even more violently than would have been otherwise so it is a question of balancing government's own priorities and allocating resources within an envelope and doing it in a way which is not going to bring the sort of wrath of the markets down upon you because well, who cares about the markets at some level, they set the cost at which government does the borrowing which it needs to do
0: yeah Hillary, with perhaps the exception of North Korea, I don't think we can find any other country that can sort of claim to be perfectly autonomous and can perfectly insulate itself from the external and exogenous factors that happen everywhere else across the world. And as you've mentioned this year, we probably have lived through the two extremes where, of course, the invasion of Ukraine in particular, that's one extremity that causes great disruption to supply chains, and we saw the impact that that had, but also But ironically, it then precipitated this commodities boom, which then created a windfall tax for us. My worry is that these exogenous factors must surely make it very difficult for a country like South Africa in particular to really do this medium-term planning, because if it then turns out that next year there'll be another great disruption, well, then all your inputs are quite simply undermined. How difficult is it for South Africa being so heavily exposed to exogenous factors for it to actually plan for the medium-term?
2: And usually we we, we are relatively well-placed. Um, one of the analysts called us a safe haven among emerging markets. First of all, although the entire world has been hit by um, huge increases in fuel and food and some other commodity prices, uh, we've got the advantage that we've also benefited, as you say, from increases in the prices of the commodities that we sell. How long that continues is one of the things we want to see what Treasury thinks about that. Um, uh, we also had inflation relatively – we never had terribly low inflation, but we had a lid on it. So relative to a lot of other countries, our inflation has not really particularly got out of control. So both fiscally and in terms of monetary policy, we, we um, you know things are relatively stable within. But as you say, the exogenous factors are everything. And we are looking at the difference between – February, when, when I don't know, the global economy was expected to grow by over 4%, and now when the IMF expects it to grow closer to, the, to 2%. So the prospect of a global recession, yes, could indeed affect South Africa's economic prospects quite dramatically. Um, but I think there's also a lot of concern in the world about the state of global financial markets because um, since February, the cost at which we and every other country has borrowed has really um, – gone up so i think we do have to be quite careful about how much we borrow and uh, how we borrow so those are the kinds of issues that we do need to look at um and we will be looking to the minister to see what he has to say about the exogenous factors within which we are making our own budgetary decisions
0: yeah, very, very important considerations ahead of next week. If you'd like to obviously give us your insights, feel free to tweet and just tag at Business Life. And you can also raise your hands. We'll be able to take some questions here. Isa Hillary raises a very important dimension here. And this is that issue of fiscal and monetary policy. In the South African context, there seems to be a universal lack of understanding of what, The limitations of fiscal policy and the limitations of monetary policy are, at any point in time, how they overlap and what can be leveraged at what particular point in time. So you will see that whenever the Reserve Bank comes out and then they say our response to what we see as the pressing issue relating to our mandate, which is, of course, the inflation rate, is to deal with the interest rates. And then everybody turns around and then say, well, on what basis are you dealing with interest rates when there's high unemployment? And that seems to be underpinned by this universal inability to distinguish between the capabilities and the limitations of those twin instruments. Talk us through what the two are, what the differences are, and more importantly, what does it mean for a country like South Africa trying to fix so many issues at the same time?
3: Perhaps let me start with uh, monetary policy. In the current environment, all countries are trying to fight the high inflation to reduce the cost of living, particularly for the poor. If we take South Africa's uh, case, we have inflation at 7.5 percent. But if we look through the income deciles, for decile one, which is essentially the poorest of the poor, inflation is at 10 percent. Two, that's 9.4%. So as you move higher in the deciles, you see that inflation actually moderates, which means the poorest of the poor are hit the most, which is what you hear the central bank saying we want to protect the poor. But over and above that, um, normally, monetary policy also serves as an anchor, as much as fiscal policy serves as an anchor for financial markets, uh, asset pricing which is quite important for reducing the cost of debt in the whole economy. Now, there have to be a coordination between fiscal policy and monetary policy, such that we don't see one arm of the state doing the exact opposite of what the other one is trying to do. Case in point, the UK, over the last couple of weeks, we had the fiscal authorities cutting taxes, essentially stimulating the economy while the central bank, which is the, the Bank of England, is trying to control inflation by hacking interest rates. So that shows lack of coordination. Fiscal policy is in charge of, you know, how government spend the tax revenues that have been collected by SARS across all its various programs, as Michael Sachs alluded to. And beyond what they can actually disperse to the various arms of government, national treasury perhaps you can say they don't have a lot of control on some of their uh, you know uh, uh, spending items which then leaves the local authorities in charge of how those monies are controlled they can monitor but sometimes they do not have that control so there are limitations to what can be done in terms of actually following through to actually see where this money is 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 ultimately spent and how it is ultimately spent which is why at times there's a lot of money that is retained to national treasury because local authorities fail to, to spend that, that money, particularly on, on capital expenditure. So there are limitations on fiscal policy as much as there are also limitations on monetary policy. The central bank cannot affect anything on energy security. It can't do anything on water availability. It can also can't do anything on the availability and quality of skills that the economy wants. All of these things, they do affect whether the country is able to attract fixed investment, whether the country can actually grow and generate jobs. But we can't then say these two institutions alone are responsible for the totality of the performance of the economy. There are other arms of government that needs to also do what they're designed to do so that the total government sector uh, can then deliver what it's supposed to do to citizens. One of the issues, just to mention as an example, the issue of safety and security is quite important for the tourism sector, but it's just for every citizen, it's quite important. There's nothing fiscal policy can do beyond making the funds available. To make sure that we have safety and security. The security cluster needs to be able to function and provide that security to citizens.
0: Oh, some very inter- important insights, Tim. So, Isa, I mean, as this P- budget speech, I mean, the finance minister, you could probably say, is the custodian of the fiscal policy instruments while the governor. Will be the custodian of the monetary policy instruments. We understand when you say that it is completely uh, undesirable for these two instruments to be working to be working opposite each other. They should be gravitating towards trying to achieve the same outcomes. The question that naturally arises is whether in South Africa we are anywhere close to getting the type of coordination that can enable us to say, look. Given the state of where we are, given the limitations of both these instruments, we are achieving the absolute best outcomes at this particular point in time? Or is there still space or capacity to do better?
3: Look, in the mid-2000s, we had, you know, better fiscal monetary policy coordination. Somehow, after the global financial crisis, that waned quite a bit. But I think in the current environment, it seems to be coming back again. But there is a lot that can be done. Where there might be a need to to do more coordination is on the administered prices. Essentially, they are one of the biggest components of our inflation structurally, which means no matter what the central bank does, as long as Administered prices remain quite elevated, which are set by government through the national treasury and other various agencies of the state, it's going to be quite difficult for the central bank to be able to control inflation, to bring inflation much lower. So that's where we need to see national treasury and government agencies that are responsible for setting administrative prices, doing a bit more to make sure that they can be reduced if it's possible. That would make the job of the central bank much easier in that high interest rate is much to bring down inflation because national treasury would have dealt with the admitted surprises.
0: A very tricky one, and Michael, I mean, I'd like to come back to you on this one because the question of coordination is something that clearly is of critical importance towards getting the economy on the right path. There seems to be a view that at some point in time, it probably worked better than it did at other points in time, and at this point, we just need to get it working again. Is this the type of thing that from your perspective now as an, as an outsider from, you know, the front line of government, do you see us moving towards the Same direction, or are we still literally fighting each other and putting ourselves on the foot?
1: So uh, I will I will say something about coordination, but I just wanted to firstly say something about administered prices because I I think I say it's 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 right that one of the main drivers of inflation in the economy is administered prices. But I think the the mistake that is made by the folks in the Reserve Bank often. Uh, is, is somehow there's a contradiction in terms in, the, in their argument, because the real issue is not the administered prices. It's the costs of delivering the services that the administered prices re, uh, represent. So, for example, a very important administrative price is the electricity tariff. Now, it's all very well saying that we should hold down electricity tariffs or somehow, of course, that one's a regulated price. It's not really in the control of National Treasury. But uh, the regulator, to a large extent, has been holding down the, the, the price of electricity. The problem is that the cost, uh, ESCOM's costs, have not adjusted to those prices. And so if you can't hold down the costs then the prices are going to rise. And if you attempt to hold down the prices when the costs are rising, you end up with a bankrupt ESCOM. And then you essentially, instead of raising administered prices, you have to raise taxes to subsidize the costs that you can't hold down. So we need to, it's an important point, but we need to go beyond the prices and ask why is it so difficult for for public sector agencies to hold down costs? And and, and that can be a a much more complicated discussion. My view about uh, um, uh, policy coordination between fiscal and monetary authorities is essentially that I think there are many things to recommend the the framework called inflation targeting. Um, And it's probably not, uh, it's hard to think it 's kind of the the, the worst uh, inflation or it 's the worst monetary policy anchor, except for all of the others um, so so i 'm not against inflation targeting as such, but one of the drawbacks of the infla the way inflation targeting is implemented in, in in South Africa is that it effectively precludes uh, effective policy coordination because uh, if you take an extreme view which I think many people do of, for instance, the independence of the Reserve Bank. Um, Essentially, the coordination, uh, it's the kind of coordination that economists theorize about, which is decentralized uh, coordination. In other words, the Reserve Bank and the Treasury are simply responding to each other. They're not actually talking to each other and planning their policy together. The Reserve Bank simply responds to whatever the Treasury does. If the treasury comes in, um, uh, consolidates the fiscus to the to the to the liking of the reserve bank, then the reserve bank says it will reduce interest rates. If treasury is unable to do that, the, res- the reserve bank is going to raise interest rates. And and this, from the perspective of the reserve bank, is is often what they regard as monetary uh, as monetary fiscal coordination. Whereas in fact, in a society like South Africa which is subject to these large global shocks that Hillary was talking about, you need a much more uh, deeper level of cooperation and coordination around policy between monetary and fiscal authorities that I think, again, in our current institutional framework of kind of a, a reserve bank that takes an extreme view on its independence and an inflation-targeting framework, the, 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 you actually can't have a, a serious uh, debate about mon- uh, monetary fiscal coordination.
0: It is a very, very difficult state of affairs. But also, Michael, when you do talk about administered prices, I mean, I suppose the two that most people are affected by in South Africa to a large extent are obviously the fuel prices and the electricity prices. And given the external shocks that have particularly affected those two um, you know, administered prices over the past year, we actually have seen that at some point in time the government was able to say that, look, that fuel levy of XYZ, we will suspend it for a particular period of time which probably represented the very first sort of direct intervention of saying that, well, actually, on the one side, we've had this windfall taxes from the commodities boom, so surely we can be able to alter something else in order to get much better outcome for society. It didn't seem to last, but for me, it represented a small glimmer of hope in that at some point in time, Maybe due to external shocks, maybe due to things like a war in the Ukraine, you suddenly see that sort of, you know, rigidity shifting a bit. Is this something that is a once-off or can it be something that gets replicated when other circumstances demand it, as we've seen in the past year?
1: In my view, it's a distraction and uh, it's worse than that. It's a distraction that creates false hope and a false expectation that, again, uh, maybe it's, it's it's an even better point about administered prices. The price of petrol at the pump, the fundamental determinant of that price is the global dollar price of oil and the rand exchange rate. We can, uh, at a cost of six billion rand, uh, subsidize, use tax money to divert tax money that is chronically needed, by the way, uh, for healthcare and education and social grants and many good reasons, we can divert that to subsidizing the price of petrol, uh, but that really, firstly, uh, is going to be limited in its ability to do anything, and secondly, is uh, leading you down a path where now government is taking uh, agreeing to, to to control things that really it cannot control, and so is facing. Uh, placing itself in a position to further weaken and undermine its credibility i'm not an extremist on this point it's good that uh, the minister of finance was seem to be responsive to to the the shock that people were f- uh, feeling in their pockets but really uh, manipulate that the tax uh, on petrol is not the fundamental determinant of the price of petrol it's simply a fixed amount and if you reduce that tax as we did this year, what you're essentially doing is robbing Peter to pay Paul because uh, the, the, the benefit of lower fuel prices is going to be paid uh, by those who, who are queuing outside the offices of the road accident fund uh, for payouts on their medical bills from road accidents who will have to wait longer because the tax on petrol is not paying for those payouts. So somebody is losing. And somebody is gaining. And in the case of petrol uh, uh, price, attempts to manipulate the price, my view is that it's, it's fundamentally regressive uh, and unhelpful.
0: Yeah.
3: Perhaps <laughs> I could <laughs> add a bit here, Kaya. Uh, yes, Michael, is, Michael is not an extremist in his view. Uh, and that's great, maybe because he's a very renowned former public servant. Let me be a bit extreme on this one. I think Treasure made a mistake to actually do a, you know, that fuel levy um, a subsidy because essentially it helped me and you that I have cars to pay less for petrol, but public transport costs did not stay constant. It actually went up. For, so for the poor, they actually paid more despite the reduction in the fuel levy. So it was poorly targeted because it didn't focus on the poorest of the poor. It should have been properly targeted in some way to make sure that people that do not need the help actually don't get help, but people that require the help get the help that they deserve.
0: Well, talk us through that, Isa. How could it have been better targeted in order to ensure that the benefit accrued to the ones that needed it the most? I imagine that the basis for your proposition is that you and I are the ones that are likely to be driving our own cars. So therefore a full tank, a subsidy on the full tank matters more to me than it matters to someone who's contributing as part of a taxi journey or as part of a bus journey. So proportionately I would get a much greater benefit. But then how do you actually then target that in a manner that enables the person who's getting on a bus trip to be able to get a much greater um, proportion of that subsidy than you and I would be getting.
2: Can I say something? I mean, there, there are many w- different ways to ta- to attack the fuel price, um, Kaya. Uh, you know, the fuel price is a combination, as Michael said, of, of the global oil price um, and the RAND. So, you know, government's credibility uh, also – is one of the factors driving the level of the rand so so there are many different ways to get it but but certainly um, i don 't think that monetary policy is so controversial at the moment I mean what how much the reserve bank increases interest rates is is, is the subject of great debate but really there's, with a global cost of living crisis um, at the moment, I think most people would are asking central banks to control inflation, and I think it is actually less controversial. Than it usually is, and um, uh, the 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 Reserve Bank, whether too independent for Michael's taste or you know not independent for other people's taste, um, is focused on putting a lid on inflation, making sure that those fuel prices and those high food prices don't translate into price rises across the whole economy, and. Um, I have a suspicion that more people would be in support of that now than they possibly might be. But let me let Isa go back to the subject of how you would target a fuel price subsidy if you actually wanted to do such a thing.
3: Perhaps let me uh, give an example of what other countries are doing. In some European countries, particularly be- Belgium, they have frozen the cost of public transport. Essentially, it would increase normally the price of trains as the cost increase. But this time around, this year in particular, there is a flat cost that has been imposed across, across the board, which means those that use the public transport system actually do not feel as much the cost of, trans- of, of moving around. That is one way where you have a properly functioning public transport system, you could do it that way. In our case, perhaps it's more difficult, given that our public transport system is not well integrated and well designed as in some of these European countries that I'm I'm, I'm giving as, as an example. But you would, for instance, say to the public transport system, we can provide this subsidy so that you don't have to raise your prices for the rest of the year. That could be one way to do it. In that way, the end consumer that uses the transport does not feel the change in the prices.
0: I, I suppose the part that will be of concern to a lot of people listening to this is that if it's as straightforward as you and I explaining it, if it's as simple and as linear as you articulated, surely by the time government makes the announcement that we've decided that this is the intervention to go to go with, they would have considered all of those and they would have said that our intention or our duty as a government is to protect the most marginalized, so therefore let us find a way of putting direct subsidies into public transport rather than putting together a model that benefits the rich. Are you telling us that our government is not in a position to essentially really apply its minds, its collective um, minds to actually then saying this is what needs to be done in order to achieve particular outcomes?
3: Government is in a position to do that. We, we actually have subsidi- subsidies on food. We have a number of food products that are zero rated where you don't pay VET on them. That's essentially a subsidy in recognition that certain food types are consumed by the majority, you know, poor poor people. And then government has made a decision to provide a subsidy on that in the form of exempting them from VET. It could be possible to do that with transport. But perhaps because of our the nature of our transport is not as easy to implement as it is on food products.
1: I was going to say, Isa, that I I, I think uh, maybe one of the problems with the with the comparison that you made with Europe is that in South Africa, uh, let's be honest, there is no public transport. Uh, there once was uh, a Prasa passenger rail, but it seems to be have, have been driven into the ground. Uh, there are a few buses and there's your PUTCOs and stuff, but the vast majority of people, uh, the public transport they use is uh, privately owned taxis. And uh, I've been a believer for some time that the, 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 one of the important structural reforms that we never talk about is uh, reform to this uh, taxi industry and uh, if government had some approach of subsidizing that industry because it's the only form of public transport that is not subsidized um in exchange for the formalization and and if you like taming of the violence and the criminality in the industry, uh, bringing it into some kind of relationship with government on the back of some subsidy, that would be an incredibly beneficial structural reform that we could uh, engage in. And if we had done that 10 years ago, maybe we would have a basis of targeting uh, price subsidies better to those who most need it in this sector. I missed opportunity there.
0: Hillary, I'd like to stick with this idea of targeted interventions because many years after many reports had said that we need to consider a way of offering some form of income security to the most marginalized, it took the COVID 19 pandemic to essentially push government into putting together some form of income support mechanism, which was a social relief of dist- distress grant of 350 Rand. It has remained in place, not because government still feels that we're living through the heart of the pandemic, because now suddenly it looks like a bit of an economic, a political hot potato to actually then say we're cutting it off. Is that the type of intervention that has got us closer to saying we are actually targeting these interventions of the people that need it the most? And if so, is this the type of thing that we should expect to be maintained beyond next week's policy statement, beyond next year's budgets, and perhaps into perpetuity?
2: Kaya, that's one of the big ticket issues that this uh, medium term budget is being very closely watched for, and 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 it's really. I mean, we go into the budget. We don't. I think a lot of people don't look at the detailed figures so much. They look for the big policy signals that come out of it. And in this particular budget next week, social grants and the basic income grant, the signalling on that is going to be really important. Uh, the other big ticket thing, which is um, is is the uh, the eskim debt what relief government is going to provide and under what conditions um and another and 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 then the sort of uh how the minister sees the the wage um the public sector wages unfolding over the next few years and how he sees revenues unfolding over the next few years so so if I had to capture what are the kind of big things that people are going to be watching in next week 's budget, that is it and I think the grants debate is. A particularly important one because, um, as you said, the Social Relief of disgrace grant, the special COVID, 350 rand a month grant was made available in COVID. At the first time that government has um, made grants available for working-age adults who, in theory, could work but do not. Um, we have a very, very extensive uh, social grant, social protection system in South Africa, but... It applies to old people, children, disabled people, or it had historically um government had long been very careful not to um give uh grants to to people who, in theory could work and of were of working age and were able bodied so that that was as you say, a bit of a radical departure, introduced as a temporary grant, the three hundred and fifty. Um, Two or three years on, it's still there and government has extended it, I think, more than once, uh, in part because it is a political hot potato, but also because employment never really recovered from the ravages of COVID. Um, And there's the whole question of what do we do about that? And if you are targeting the most vulnerable in society, certainly some people have argued that the 350 Rand a month is actually quite well targeted um at 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 people who really need it and may have sort of upside in terms of helping people find employment and so on. The question the kind of short, medium term question, if you like, is does the minister extend the social relief of distress 350 Rand a month grant at what cost? To whom? Um, how long can he extend it for before it becomes deemed to be permanent? But the bigger question is, does this form the basic the basis for the basic income grant that um, you know some people in South Africa have called for for a very long time, um, and then we get into the whole growth versus grants debate. if our issue in South Africa is the very large number of unemployment unemployed people um, at a philosophical policy level, what is the best way to go about addressing this? Is it just to almost give up and say, well, growth, is, growth and employment are just not going to happen. Um, the budget just needs to take taxpayers' money and give it to unemployed people. Um, or should we be trying to find another way um, to ensure that government policy and the budget itself uh, help to boost growth and employment. So that's really yeah. the big debate and we're looking for the signals on that one.
0: And the secondary difficulty here, Hillary, is that we now know, and as I mentioned earlier on, that inflation is actually much harder. It hits much harder. It's much more acute on the lower income level. So when there is a small change for people with a limited income, it takes a much greater proportion of what they have. So I suppose the question that one one always has to deliberate on is if you say 352 years ago, and you now see not only normal inflation, but also the cost of living crisis, so even the people that have been receiving the grant over the past two years, the value of that grant has diminished over time. And one has to then ask the more philosophical question of, if you keep saying that the grant is being um, uh, provided, surely the value of the grant itself must also be maintained. In other words, the number is no longer 350.
2: Yeah, look, inflation affects the budget in all sorts of ways. And that, and that is certainly one of them. and, and, yeah, I think globally that is something that governments are grappling with is amidst a cost of living crisis. Um, how best do you allocate the limited res- fiscal resources you have, which may be much more limited than you thought they were, if if growth is going to tank to the extent that, you know, some of the global agencies are starting to predict? Yeah. I was going to pose a question to Michael, um, if I may. uh Michael, you published your research yesterday, um, which is a really interesting piece of research uh, that showing that, um, well, certainly arguing that uh, public sector, that, yeah, arguing that, that, that public sector um, service delivery is what has taken the hit in the last uh, few years um, because of the cuts in government spending and that further cutting, uh, sort of consolidating the budget by cutting the public sector wage bill is going to be even worse for service delivery. So I had sort of two related questions. You say um, in, in your paper, which I recommend everyone read, you say that you don't necessarily uh, feel that the government should stop Fiscal consolidation, in other words, trying to kind of put the lid on the debt um, but that in a sense it 's the mix of how you do it that you are querying uh, so so my my that 's almost my second question michael is what what do you how do you propose that a government should go about sound fiscal policy um in a context in which actually service delivery has been quite badly affected by the cuts which have been implemented so far but my first question in a sense is if the money has not gone to frontline service delivery then where has it gone and uh yeah and why and uh, how do we arrest that
1: well, I, th- I think, first of all, when you say where has the money gone, I think uh, maybe we have a different uh, perspective on on fiscal trends. Because when I look at the uh, spending by government over the last decade, it has been pretty much flat. There hasn't been any additional money. As I, as I mentioned a bit earlier, if you go back to the t- 2000s, Every year, the medium term expenditure framework was an exercise in adding more and more extra funds above the floor that had been previously announced. Uh, What we've been doing for the last 10 years is effectively announcing a ceiling and then reducing that ceiling as we go forward. So there hasn't been any additional money allocated in real terms. Um so I think the main point um uh that i that, that in a sense maybe i can i can dodge the question like this uh uh if if you like that i'm not uh m- my point is that not that fiscal consolidation should not go ahead it is that we must all understand that fiscal consolidation has consequences, and those consequences are negative for public service delivery and are regressive in the sense that they, they look to be widening uh, income inequality in South African society. And that is especially so where a choice has been made to focus the full, be, be, because what, what we're doing here is an adjustment. Um, macroeconomic policy in many ways is a question of how do you adjust to shocks? We have, an, we have a, uh, a situation in which the real economy isn't growing uh, and hasn't been growing for quite a long time, and it, and it forces an adjustment on society. And the questions we need to ask is, who is bearing the burden of that adjustment? And in my view, uh, the way we are failing to manage the fiscal consolidation, we are placing the burden of that adjustment on frontline services such as health and education and um, uh, uh, criminal justice. In the second instance, in the first instance, the aim is to lower the salaries of public servants, uh, essentially teachers, doctors, nurses and police officers. And uh, people tend to be uh, um, comfortable with that, but it's also important to remember that uh, what what we are facing the burden on the on of adjustment on a significant section of the lower middle class of South African society um, is how I would define them. Certainly, middle class, but also not affluent. Um, And we need to ask questions. uh, Look, ultimately, and I'm sure the three of us will agree that um, the, the only way out of this is some sustained pace of growth. Um, So I don't really have a fiscal solution to the crisis because I don't think there is a fiscal solution. I think as long as growth continues to stagnate, the fiscus will continue to be in crisis. And uh, we really need to uh, um, have some adaptation strategies to that fiscal consolidation. And my sense is, is that government... Particularly at the centre of government, are not at all. They they would rather ignore all of those issues and focus on the new stuff that's going to win them votes. That's understandable, but it's a very big tragedy.
2: So, Michael, just following up on that. I mean, that's a really interesting point. That in a in a sense, it's like a flat cut. Which I know in the past, you've 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 often, when you were in the budget office, you really you often worried about that departments would cut in really dysfunctional ways if you just said you know, take a 10% haircut, um, is, it, is what has happened to frontline service deliveries, what you describe in your paper, is, it, is that a lot of it? Um, is it also that how meaningful has the kind of amount of money that's gone to state-owned enterprises such as Eskom, on the one hand, which I think we've spent 170 billion rand on in the past four years, Um, And on the other hand, to debt service costs. I mean, how meaningful a chunk um, out of spending has that been? Is there a sense in which more and more money is going to that and perhaps to the kind of new shiny stuff that you describe and less and less to frontline service delivery?
1: So uh, let me try and answer a little bit quickly. Then I see Kaya is back, so maybe he can pose what... (laughs) What he was going to pose to to Isa, but um, I think um, the 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 problem has been. I I think I've lost my your question now, Hillary. So maybe we should just go back to Kaya, and uh, I will I will remember just now what you asked me. All right, thank you very much. I promise
4: you, it was not lost.
1: Thank you very much, Hilary. So,
0: Isa, I mean, what I was saying is that, you know, when we've been speaking about this basic income grant for a very long time, up until COVID-19 happened, the literature was quite polarizing. You could get an opinion that told you that you should do it, and you could get an equally strong opinion that would say, do not do it. And, of course, what we've now had over the past two years is a real-time case study that should now be uh, give us some greater insights onto whether a universal access to an income grant for South Africa is the way to go or not. Do we now have better insights than we did two years ago on whether it is desirable, on whether it is targeted the right way, or whether it should indeed be kept in perpetuity?
3: Look, I think this is a very difficult question. Uh, It's very politically sensitive and polarizing but maybe before I address this, let me just say something on fiscal consolidation and why it should continue. There are costs to delay of delaying fiscal consolidation. If you delay it now, you'd have to do a lot more in the future that is going to be more painful, particularly if economic growth does not materialize. And in our economy, we have learned over the last decade that you don't bank on announcements of policy, you bank on implementation, which has been too slow. So in my view, if you con- if you consider the fact that the bulk of the fiscal deficit is interest payments, it then says we need to consolidate to reduce those debt service costs so that the money can be used for something productive or capital investment which can lift growth in future. That's a very theoretical response on what to why we need to consolidate first, so that we reduce the, the 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 cost of having to consolidate a lot more over a short time when our debt becomes unsustainable. On your question of uh, you know a basic income grant, whether we have more information now, definitely there has been a lot of discussions, debates, and papers being written. Uh, estimates on how much it will cost and what the impact it will have on taxes and growth. So there is a lot more information that is available now relative to pre-COVID. But philosophically, in my view, the success of a state is not measured by how many people are on social support by the state. It is on how many people can find jobs in the open market in an economy that is operating optimally. That, for me, is a measure of a state that is you know, doing what it's supposed to do well, designing policies that encourage investments to take place, uh, you know, businesses to be formed, and people to either form businesses or to be able to find work in, in the private sector. So far, the debate does not really talk about how do we make sure that happens The debate of the basic income grant excludes how we should reform our education and skills sector to make sure that if the economy grows, a lot of the people are employable. In the current state, even if the economy grows by 5%, we might find that some of the people that are outside of the labor market are not employable, simply because of skills. So I'm not convinced that a basic income grant that is permanently you know, put in our fiscals is a solution. I'm always in favor to say, let's provide short-term relief in times of crisis, but we need a growth strategy that can create jobs so that people are able to stand on their own. Because I would not imagine a case where I am born, I get a child support grant, and then I go into adult age, I go on a basic income grant, And then I go into retirement, I go into old age grant, and then I die. I don't think that is the best way to say people have lived their lives well.
0: That would be a failure of disproportionate levels. A very difficult and a very polarizing conversation indeed. Michael, in about eight weeks' time, the ANC will obviously converge for its conference and I imagine that those that have kept track of the various policy conferences over the past 20 years will be accurately aware of the fact that the idea of universal income support has always been a big feature of those particular conferences. And I suppose the question is, ahead of a conference of delegates who believe ideologically that such an income plan ought to exist, it is quite inconceivable that a minister could stand up next week and say we're cutting it off and then have to explain himself to delegates eight weeks later.
1: I think, uh, Kaya, that is a a proposition which uh, looms large in the entire MTBPS, uh, unfortunately, that uh, you face a situation as Minister of Finance where not only do you face all of these pressures um, from global shocks, the domestic crises, various domestic crises that we have, but you do so in a context where anything you can say, if it provokes a kind of the bureaucratic layer of of a uh, and cadres that that govern us, uh, are going to basically second guess you uh, in December. And uh, it could have any all kinds of consequences for you personally as a leader. But more than that, uh, you could simply end up with a resolution that repudiates whatever you announced in the MTBPS, which, of course, would further uh, uh, add to the processes I was talking about at the start of kind of undermining the, the, the fiscal institutions that, that, that currently govern us. Because effectively, what happens is that now the budget is not made in in the executive of government. It's made in uh, Lutuli House or Nasrek or, or one of these venues where it is purely an ideological question, and in which the I I, I actually think we're being polite saying it's ideological, but it, it's about interest groups pursuing their own interests. And I think uh, probably most in the ANC would look to the, the basic income grant at, not as an ideological solution, but as something that could potentially save them or not, or sink them uh, in the next election. So that's the basis on which uh, the decisions unfold, because I agree largely with ISA, I think, on this one, that uh, this, this uh, you, you, you know... It, I, I think it's kind of here to stay. It's not gonna go away. Um but it is it's not the the opening the path to some radical transformation of society. It's actually the opposite. It's almost an admission of defeat. That we're, we're so, we're, we're, we're so now, we're in a position where we have been unable to generate growth and employment and, and real meaningful transformation of society that is needed for a, a sustainable pl- path of growth and development. So instead, we're going to hand out small amounts of cash. And I think, uh, I, I don't, I think it's going to be with us. Uh, it's it's them. It's gonna be good for many reasons. It is gonna uh, relieve poverty and hunger, and that's not to be sneezed at. That's an important, uh, direct contribution it would make. Um, but uh, as a development strategy, it is almost an admission of bankruptcy. So uh, let, let, uh, uh, let, really let, me, let me throw out
3: something, Kaya, before you go on the the quantum that the the SRD currently or the the, the social relief of distressed grant of 350 rand says something about our labour policy as well. Because we do have minimum wages in this country across various uh, sectors of the economy. Those minimum wages are far higher than what government is providing as a grant. I think there is a disconnection in that because I would imagine a case where, if minimum wages were slightly lower, some of the people that are getting 350 Rand could find jobs in the economy because it's affordable for the private sector. But because they are set at slightly much higher levels, those people are relegated to getting a 350 instead of perhaps getting a 1000 Rand in some form of a job. I think there might be something that needs to be looked at as far as our minimum wage uh, uh, relative to our uh, social support are concerned.
0: Yeah. I suspect, Aza, the pushback there would be in South Africa, the cost of accessing a job on a continuous basis for most people is going to be significantly higher than the 1,000 rand that you use for an example. So perhaps the idea of setting minimum wages where we've set them is to ensure that no one actually says that I've got a job only to discover at the end of the month that they're actually cash poor. How do we get that balance right? Because in the absence of properly functioning public transport systems that make, tra- you know, transit much more accessible, much more reliable. Very few people would actually take up a job at a thousand rand in the country where we live. That's
3: very true. It's a, it's a difficult, uh, you know, uh, balancing act. Therefore, we should also be saying the same to the people that are receiving three hundred and fifty rand. To say, even if we were to call it it's a, a, to call it a job seeker's grant, effectively, by your argument these guys would not be able to look for jobs because the 350 is too low for them to actually travel and look for jobs. Why is it then a 350 range? I'm just pointing out a dislocation on our labor uh, policy
0: relative to what we are doing on
3: the basic income grant.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a tricky one because government will probably argue that the 350 was not meant to facilitate many of the things that a fully employed person is expected to access on an ongoing basis. So it it, it, it has too many tensions and trade-offs. Hillary, when we do speak about trade-offs, I mean... If we are to accept, as Michael proposes, that we probably should start accepting that this grant is here to stay, we've heard proposals about why it should at least mirror the, you know, the 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 the, the, the basic poverty line. Six hundred twenty-four is one of the numbers that we've heard. There are numbers that are much higher than that that have been proposed. Whatever the answer is, whether you stay three hundred fifty, whether you go to the poverty line, or whether you go above, that means that it has to be a trade-off from some other part of the state from some other um highly pressing demand how do we get that balance right in light of the fact that this is probably the basic income grant in one form that's going to be here with us for a while
2: Kaya I think that's exactly uh, when we lost you that's exactly the kind of thing that that, that, that we were actually discussing um that, that Michael Michael has been highlighting the fact that in fact what's taken the hit is frontline service delivery um hmm and the quality and, 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 and the, the, the sort of some of the, and, and to some extent the senior people and experienced people in the public service have been sort of, uh, we've lost because a lot of the cuts of, have, 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 because of the lot a lot of the cuts that we've had. So, so that, that need to look at, do we pay for new shiny things? Um, be they, you know, I mean, a few years ago it was free higher education for all. Um, then it, you know, more recently it's been the presidential employment stimulus, which is another, which is costing uh, government is at eleven or eighteen billion a year, which is another way to try and tackle the unemployment. Do we do that? Do we do the basic? Uh, do we do? Do we do the social relief of disgrace grant, um, which is costing is it forty billion a year? Do we turn that into uh, more? a much bigger, um, more permanent basic income group, those are exactly the kinds of, of debates that government should be having. What are the trade-offs? And I suppose what um, is worrying about the process is, are those debates happening within government in an evidence-based way? Like we would do more for the the, the kind of millions of unemployed people if we did this with our money instead of that money with our money. And I think that kind of level of policy debate, macroeconomic policy debate, if you like, is just not there. A lot of it is just, as Michael says, get, getting, you know, it's kind of comes down by edict from Latuli House. So if there's one thing I, th- I think we would all agree on, it is that um those trade-offs, ideally we would like to see being made in a much more evidence-driven Rational way. And, and unfortunately, they tend not to be. A lot of it is just sort of crisis management. Um, and, and often yeah. services take the hit. Uh, all sorts of things take the hit. I mean, you know, my little bit, I, I mean, I, I've thrown in Eskimo before, but you know, the amount of money the SOEs are consuming, um, is also another thing that, that, that resources are going to, which if we make different policy choices, they might not need to go to. So, so I think that's exactly what a medium-term budget would ideally be about, but uh, it's not going to be about.
0: Yeah. Hilary, when we converged in NASRIC five years ago, one of the most contentious debates, obviously, related to the question of the independence of the Reserve Bank. And, of course, even though the resolution emerged saying that it needed to be nationalized, this administration has found a way to quite simply ignore that. There have been a couple of changes, in my view, since then, where we've seen, obviously, globally, all reserve banks had to respond In one way or another, to the COVID-19 pandemic, even our own Reserve Bank essentially moved onto territory that it hadn't been to before. But also, quite importantly, as we heard earlier on, I think Isaac and Michael referred to it as an extreme view on independence. And the consequences of that is that it's been very clear that inflation targeting is their primary instrument. However, in spite of all of that, the governor himself has been quite vocal in the past couple of years in saying, wait, hold on. Inflation targeting, yes, but that band of 3 to 6% is something that is no longer in favour of. He's advocating for a singular reference point. <laughs> My suspicion is that a singular reference point essentially kills the breathing space and the latitude that the Reserve Bank would have in order to say, well, even though inflation is X, Y, Z, we can delay an an interest rate increase. Doesn't that change in the tone of the governor mean that the question of the Reserve Bank's independence and what it does will be at the top of mind again in Nasrec when we converge in eight weeks' time?
2: not so sure, Kaya, but I don't, um, I'm no political analyst and I don't understand the dynamics within the ANC. I mean, uh, globally, central banks, I mean, I think in the UK, I think the, the uh, um, in the UK at one point, uh, the left was demanding that the central bank do something about inflation. In other mm. words inflation must be the mandate in at a time when food and peel, fuel prices are going up and inflation is really spiraling out of control in a lot of advanced countries um it seems to me that the recognition that uh, central banks need to target inflation um there's more support for that than there has been for a very long time so i'm not so sure that uh, that inflation targeting in and of itself is going to be such a big issue. Um, it is, of course, a decision that government has to make. It's not a decision for the Reserve Bank on its own to make what the target is going to be. Um, I have a suspicion that the, that the governor, who's been um, suggesting for more than a year now that uh, we lower the, the inflation target band, he was suggesting that when we were actually getting inflation kind of down quite nicely, Um and he's still sort of suggesting it. I, I I kind of have a suspicion sometimes that he's he's calling for the target to be tightened, um, to stave off any pressure for the target to be raised. Because in in some other countries, central banks are 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 facing calls to raise the target. Advanced markets have two percent targets, people are calling for them to raise it to four percent because they're just never gonna get back to two percent. But that's really the change in the world. The world has gone from Um, a period of more than a decade of very, very low inflation, not in South Africa, but certainly in in the world, Um, in advanced countries, very, very low inflation and zero bound interest rates where money was essentially free to an environment in which the advanced countries, uh, the US has inflation of 8.5%, the UK is double digits now, over 10%, where advanced countries are facing very high inflation, which is not coming down anytime soon and which interest rates have gone up by multiples um, since February. And that, I'm not sure that anyone knows yet what that means for financial markets, for the global economy. Um, I would have thought that this might not be a time to, to make sort of world-changing decisions about the independence of the Reserve Bank because the the global environment and therefore, in a way, the local environment, I think in South Africa we're quite parochial and we don't perhaps realize the extent of uncertainty and, you know, dramatic change out there. Um, this is not a world in which you sort of start tinkering with things that have worked for now and and, and where you start kind of Letting inflation get out of control, I would have thought.
0: Yeah. Michael, you raised
2: a very... I'll
3: add as well here. I I, I think Hillary might be a little bit more diplomatic. I think the independence of the central bank must be maintained. Uh, Just imagine over the last decade, if we we had a central bank that was not independent, where could we have had an anchor for our policy, given the developments on the fiscal side and and across many of the arms of state, perhaps we could have ended up in a much more worse position than than where we were. But secondly, as the central bank officials always mention, our, our peers, our trading partners have lower inflation targets than we have, which means we become less competitive. Thirdly, from a market's perspective, if you reduce your inflation target by 100 basis point or one percentage point, and you actually achieve to anchor inflation expectations at that new target, bond yields will reduce by almost a similar amount because there is an inflation premium in our bond yields, which means you then save on the debt service costs which the state pays for, it, for its borrowings simply because we have reduced inflation expectations and actual inflation follows that. that. So there are significant benefits of having a structurally lower inflation than what we have currently. That is the argument that the central bank has, which is supported by by a lot of uh, evidence across, across the world.
0: Thank you very much for that, Islam Michael, I think the issue of the decline in the allocation of resources to frontline services is something that everybody has noticed in one form or another. And, of course, that is as a consequence of the competing resources, the limited resources, and the only way around it is to be able to tackle that great elephant, in, which simply means we must get the economy growing. From next week's budget speech, are there any low-hanging fruit that the Minister of Finance can start tapping into to say, guys, we are fast running out of runway, we need to get this moving, otherwise we're simply going to run out of other people's money?
1: So I think to get the economy growing again, uh, there is one simple and obvious issue that needs to be solved, and that is uh, electricity supply. And uh, of course, I think, as Hillary mentioned earlier, uh, Treasury and the Minister of Finance has one particular role to play on that which is uh alleviating uh, re- rescuing escom from its bankrupt condition it's essentially kind of bankrupt and and while it remains bankrupt we are limiting the the scope it has to mobilize its own resources to invest in solutions to the problem of load shedding so i think uh, uh that really is at the center of what the Minister of Finance needs to do. I, and I've been reading some of the analysis seems to be suggesting that we may not get a fully formed, complete solution out of the MTBPS. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, disappointment if there is not one, uh, not least in the markets, because I think that's one of the kind of... I think on, on the wage bill and on the, uh, the basic income grants, uh, the, 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 there are a lot of uh, known unknowns Uh, If you like, that the the people kind of know what to expect and what the parameters are, and it's more a question of risk. On the ESCOM uh, balance sheet issue, I think the problem is that the the real problem that Treasury faces is the idea of what is sometimes called moral hazard. In other words, if we uh, rescue ESCOM's balance sheet, Does that do what I'm suggesting it would do, unleash ESCOM to play a more active role in the transformation of the energy supply sector? Or does it have the opposite effect of slowing down the process of structural reform in the energy supply sector and kind of reverting to a a statist uh, uh, anti-renewable stance that many in government seem to favour? and uh, unfortunately the problem for Treasury is that we we can debate and there's a lot of debate and I'm sure we'll hear more about it in the MTVPS about conditionalities that government is supposedly going to impose on ESCOM unfortunately the problem is that the the, 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 the recalcitrant party here is not ESCOM that you need to impose conditions on, it is the cabinet of which uh, the Minister of Finance is a member and it's very difficult for a member of a club to impose uh, conditions on that club. Uh, So that is, I think, the conundrum the minister will face. Well, the strange thing,
0: Michael, has always been What makes the ESCOM debt unique is that it's already fully underwritten by the state, and the problem is that for as long as we keep that 400 billion rand in ESCOM's balance sheet, it makes the cost of servicing the debt on ESCOM much higher. It simply means that when they go to the regulator every single year and they lobby for the next tariff, they are asking for much more than they otherwise would have if that 400 billion rand wasn't in their balance sheet. In the long run, if we are to say that we're trying to uh, deal with the cost of energy, with the cost of living, is that not then the type of conversation that we need to seriously deliberate on and make a call once and for all? Because right now it feels like with every budget speech, we all speculate about is this the time that the government is going to finally say there's no point in keeping it on that balance sheet since we have fully underwritten it anyway, let us absorb it elsewhere. It feels like it's been going on for far too long. Can we be decisive about it?
1: Absolutely. I agree with most of what you've said, uh, Kaya. Um, the way I see it, government guaranteed uh, 400 billion of debt and said to ESCOM, go in the market and borrow in order to build two large power stations, Midupi and, and Kusile. ESCOM did as instructed. Unfortunately, the building of the two large power stations, which should have placed ESCOM in a stronger position, was botched so badly that it bankrupted ESCOM. So you guaranteed debt and you said, go into the market to borrow for an investment project. You botched the investment project and now the company is uh, bankrupt. And so really there's no way out except for transferring that onto the balance sheet of the fiscus, which uh, we should all know means transferring it onto the balance sheet of South African taxpayers. Um, and and uh, unfortunately, that is where we are. It's going to lead to a significant increase in the sovereign's debt service costs because all of that debt is now going to be have to be served by the sovereign instead of ESCOM. Um But but uh, that's where we are, and we need to staunch this boil uh, as quickly as possible.
2: And if I may <laughs> add on on the on the slightly upside, um, certainly some of the analysts are saying that there's never going to be a better time because with the kind of revenue uh, overruns that government has had and the fact that the deficit is coming in much lower than expected and the debt, um, the government's level of debt is stabilizing somewhat faster than expected and certainly much faster than the worst-case scenarios of a couple of years ago, um, this is probably a, a, an opportune time, if you like, to to do that Eskom debt relief solution but also, the potential upside is that government itself um is suffering from this kind of eskim overhang, as some of the analysts call it, in the sense that um you know as long as there's this uncertainty about this huge kind of elephant of uh the Eskom guarantee debt. Uh, government itself is borrowing more expensively than it would otherwise because of the risk that investors attach that it is going to have to take over the Eskom debt. So, actually, doing a solution which is not going to take over the whole four hundred billion, but let's say half of it, which makes Eskom more sustainable. Ideally, if it if it uh, gets its own act together on the costs side. Um, makes ESCA more sustainable on the one hand and in theory able to do the kind of investment that will support more private sector investment in renewable energy on the one hand. But on the other hand, should in theory um, help to lower government's own cost of borrowing. So, you know, there, there, there's if if this goes well and is done properly, there's quite a lot of upside across the board. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and it's perhaps, definitely perhaps,
0: an upside
3: that needs to it. explode. Yeah, perhaps, let me, let me reinforce Hillary's point that the South African population does not escape the cost of a no solution to ESCOM because every year the state would have to help ESCOM deal with its debt service cost and ultimately citizens pay for that through taxes. Even in the event that 200 billion, just picking a number that is widely quoted, is transferred to the state and the interest costs increase. Yes, it's citizens that pay either way. So practically, it doesn't really matter because ultimately citizens pay. Whether it's on ESCOM's balance sheet, the tariffs continue to increase and they still pay a lot more because they can't get the electricity because ESCOM is financially unviable if the state were to take 200 billion transfer it to its balance sheet escom becomes financially sustainable and it can go and you know embark on its infrastructure build and help guarantee security of energy you could say citizens in future would at least have more stable electricity supply that might reduce some of the cost they are bearing on a day to day basis so a no solution isn't helping citizens. Some form of a solution by, by, by the state relieving ESCOM states actually helps a lot more than a non-solution. Yeah. And we do, and that's, we do also that's have like to we, add, need. Pretty-
2: we, need, we absolutely have to add that we don't want ESCOM building any more power stations, as Michael points out. <laughs> what we do well. want them to do and be able to do is invest to strengthen the transmission grid so that private sector producers and especially renewable energy producers can get onto that grid and make more energy for all of us and more clean energy.
0: And then you raised that when just as we ran out of time, so maybe we should have a separate conversation about that aspect of ESCOM. One last question for you, Michael, comes from Amanda Mate. She's asking, when it comes to public transport, didn't we have a subsidy system for taxes during COVID? Was that something that was... I don't know, impractical to implement because as we earlier mentioned that if we had a more targeted intervention aimed at that element of the transport system where a lot more people use it, it would be more useful. What happened during COVID? Didn't we get that right?
1: I think uh, we we certainly, there was something like that that did take place during COVID. I'm not sure about whether it works or not, but I, I, I think we need a broader vision of the transformation of the taxi industry. It's, uh, uh, and the subsidy I'm proposing would be part of, of uh, a change strategy rather than simply uh, handing out cash.
0: All right, we do have a couple of um listeners who would like to obviously get their contributions done. We're trying to get you converted onto speaker format. We'll start with Maduna, and then we've got Aaron, Tuleto, and then Mano in that order. Please, Maduna, first up.
4: Um, Thank you very much, um, Kai. Um, Number one, um, now that you're looking at this uh, mid-term budget, I was asking myself, provided that there are these windfalls because of commodity booms, we know that um, it won't hold in long term, but why is it that the Reserve Bank um, there is a pushback from the Reserve Bank um, to 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 assume another role as op- as opposed to inflation targeting, but to finance uh, or to fund um, infrastructure and development, which is much needed today, because as uh, we are actually seeing them proactively focusing on um, interest rates. I don't even understand why should I be um, squeezed um, as, a, as a citizen when we know this inflation is not demand driven, but is largely um, driven by uh, shocks on the supply side. I'm squeezed, paying more on interest rates, which means these guys are making more money. What is it that the Reserve Bank is doing with this uh, money that they are getting if they are resistant to fund the infrastructure and development um, directly.
0: <clears throat> All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maduna. Um, I don't see any other speakers ready. So, Isa, if you can tackle that question from Maduna, please. Look,
3: let me perhaps put it this way, which is a common response that we normally we normally get from, this, from the central bankers in Pretoria. We have the DBSA, which is a state entity that is tasked with large infrastructure projects. We have the Industrial Development Corporation, which is a state entity that is tasked with, uh, you could say, you know, um, financing and developing, um, you know, manufacturing sector essentially to make sure that it can thrive. And then we have many other state institutions you you could you could throw in there the land bank, though it's not in, in the right state currently, uh, the National Empowerment Fund, all these institutions of government that have specific roles, some of which relate to large infrastructure. And then we have the central bank that has been tasked to deal with inflation. So each and every institution has a role that it was designed to. But because of a failure, In a lot of all these institutions, we want to push all those functions that are supposed to do to one institution that is doing what it's supposed to do right. I think there is a risk of overburdening one institution just because it has done what it was tasked to do correctly. Let's fix the institutions that are supposed to deliver us infrastructure so that they can deliver the infrastructure. That's what I would... I would respond uh, to, to to Maduna. As far as the inflation cost push r- relative to demand, uh, you know, pull inflation, there is quite a lot of evidence that now dispels that notion that it's only cost push inflation. If you look at volumes relative to nominal prices, you can see that. Volumes have recovered, which means it's no longer just a supply-side story. There is a demand story to the economy, not just in SA alone, but also globally. There is that research that shows that that prices are now broadening. You can see it in core inflation relative to headline inflation. Um, it's, It's very clear. Yes, there's still an element of cost push that is to a large extent, but it's not just a cost push. Inflation, and the problem of not responding to 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 inflation is inflation expectations become de-anchored from where they're supposed to be, and the cost of then correcting that, it's very high interest rates in future. So you need to correct it at the source rather than letting it go for quite too
0: long. All right. Thank you very much. It sounds like the Reserve Bank suffers from a burden of excellence. And unfortunately, we are also completely out of time. And thank you very much to everyone for joining us. The budget policy statement is, of course, happening next week, Wednesday on the 26th. And I suspect after that, we'll have many more talking points relating to what emerges from the finance minister. And until then, thank you very much for joining us and have a wonderful evening. And a special thank you to my three panelists, Michael Sachs, Isaac Klanga and Hila. Very My name is Kaya Good night.